Um, good morning, everyone. Um, welcome to my show, Cognitive Dissident. My name is Kalyani Saxena, and I'm so excited today because it's my mom's birthday, and uh, March 11th, and um, I think she's probably listening. She might also be having fun on WhatsApp because everyone's wishing her a happy birthday, which is totally her prerogative, and I very much support. Um, but yeah, it's her birthday today, and I am also here with another show for you guys. Today is going to be maybe a shorter show than usual. I only have one segment because, you know, sometimes life gets in the way. And also, this is an important segment. So today's episode is called Race and Red Lines. Shout out to my mom for coming up with this episode name. I gotta be honest with you guys, I definitely spent maybe 30 minutes trying to find an episode title because I've kind of set myself in a box where I want it to like I want them to both start with the same letter and I want it to sound cool there aren't a lot of cool things that go with housing so race and redlining it is so today I'm going to be talking to you about housing discrimination um or discrimination in the housing market and yes I know this does not sound like the most interesting topic because housing is not what everyone thinks of or wants to learn about on a Monday morning. But just stick with me, guys. I read a lot of bureaucratic stuff so that I could bring you this information, and I promise I will try to make it as... Well, I'm not going to try. I know it's going to be interesting because I found it personally to be fascinating. So um, I'm going to be specifically talking about discrimination against African Americans in the housing market. Um, And yes, since the... Basically... I'm going to talk about the historical context and also talk about it in modern day specifically how it's been affected. Um, Yeah, so before I get into it, as always, here are my sources. Um, NPR, The News Tribune, uh, The New York Times, Slate, Curbed, The Washington Post, Prospect.org, The Atlantic, Forbes, and U.S. News. Please let me know if you want to know where any of my information comes from, specifically because I understand the importance of citation and uh, fact-checking. So if you ever want to know, just reach out to me. So let's get started. So some of the historical context. Um, So it's no surprise to anyone that African-Americans are disenfranchised in the United States. I just didn't understand in how many different economic sectors and also just how long this history has been going on for. Like, I had no idea. You know, you think, okay, yes, employment discrimination, maybe discrimination in college admissions, but you have no idea the ways in which um, institutional racism really infiltrate almost every aspect of American life until you start looking into it, which I've been really lucky that this podcast has given, or this radio show as well, has given me the opportunity to do so. So here's a little early, early historical um, context for how African Americans have been historically disenfranchised by the housing market and the economy. So um, as enslaved people, African Americans initially couldn't take advantage under the Homestead Act, which basically encouraged westward migration. So they obviously couldn't do that because they were slaves. And that I feel like that's pretty obvious racism and oppression. And after they got full citizenship with the 14th Amendment and then became eligible for land grants, um, those rights really became irrelevant because there was the rise of Jim Crow and then other limitations placed on black people in southern states um, 
yeah, which Southern states put in their constitution. So for a long time, black people, like, black people were slaves. And then when they got rights, that mattered for a very short amount of time because when you, when they were granted certain rights, other restrictions were put in place so that they couldn't that they suddenly weren't getting ahead of themselves, as people during that time may have wanted to put it. So the current situation in housing, which I'll get into later, can be traced back to the 1930s, um, specifically the Federal Housing Administration, which was established in 1934. And this, okay, this this government body was so, just so, uh, I don't know if nefarious is the right word, but it's just horrible what they did. So they basically made segregation much, much worse um, by refusing, one, to insure mortgages in and around African-American neighborhoods. And this was a policy known as redlining, which I'll get into earlier. And it's also in the title of this episode. And they also subsidized builders to mass produce huge neighborhoods for white people but there was one important requirement which was that white people um none of those homes which were built for white neighborhoods could be sold to african americans so you can already kind of see the beginnings of problems here like first of all people aren't able to get mortgages and then the neighborhoods that are being built are specifically for white people but it 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 just gets it just gets worse from here so strap in folks um and then you might wonder, like, yes, this was a time of racism, but technically, it sh- this is still a, f- a free market economy, right? So I'm taking a class called Neoliberalism and its Critics, and we're studying Milton Friedman, who, in my opinion, has no realistic perception of how inequality works in a free market system. But he believes that in a free market system, there's enough competition that people, that discrimination won't matter because if one person discriminates against you, there'll be another person who's willing to work with you, is the essence of his argument, I'm, I'm summarizing. But here, this, this just proves that it's not the case. So the Federal Housing Administration, they justified this behavior, even though this is techni- technically a free market, there's supposed to be competition, there's supposed to be, you know, they're, they're, this is the 1930s, but theoretically, you should be able to buy a house. But the Federal Housing Administration was worried that if African Americans bought homes in white suburbs, or even if they bought homes near white suburbs, that the property values of the houses would start going down. So the, the logic behind that was that white people who were living in these neighborhoods would see an African American move into the neighborhood, would be like, uh-uh, I can't have any of that in my community, which, you know, is bad and disgusting. I can't have any of that in my community. I'm just going to head out of here. I'm going to get out. And then as people would leave the neighborhoods, that then the housing prices would fall. So that's kind of a common language explanation for what I'm talking about. The th- problem is that justification is totally incorrect. So in fact, when African Americans actually tried to buy homes in all white neighborhoods or even mostly white neighborhoods, property values actually rose because African Americans had so few options for housing that they were willing to pay way more than even white people because they just had no options. The housing supply was so restricted that they were going to pay more. So actually, the Federal Housing Administration was completely incorrect. The housing would have been 
much higher valued. But I think it's also important to point out that yes, yes, the housing would have been higher valued, but the reason they would have been higher valued is because African Americans already didn't have any place to live. So the the justification for that is also ripe with just problematic assertions. Um, or sorry, problematic um like, it's not, yes, the housing prices would be higher, but that's not necessarily a great thing because it, it, the housing prices would be higher because African-Americans were being systematically impressed. So, any, but I just wanted to point out that the justification is totally bogus. I think you could tell. Um, and then there was also something called the Underwriting Manual, which the Federal Housing Administration put out. And it said that incompatible racial groups should not be permitted to live in the same communities. So not only was there uh, an incentive, so not only was there limitations on where African Americans could get mortgages from, there was also like, an unofficial ideology that was being spread that racial, incompatible racial groups, aka black people, cannot live in white neighborhoods. That was the essence of the argument. So this made it seem this also gave them like further justification for not issuing loans because they said well we can't issue loans this goes against our manual because in order to issue a loan to a black person so they can live in this neighborhood it would be going against our our ideology our morals that racial groups should not live in the same communities i think it's really interesting actually how many racist and you know discriminatory things have been justified on the basis of just moral objection like it makes me morally uncomfortable to have people of different races living together like what what is that kind of I mean, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, you're saying your your moral discomfort is more valuable than someone having a place to live. Um, that doesn't make any sense to me. But it's interesting how powerful that, like, how powerful that is as a rhetorical device. Like, what are you going to do to someone? Like, say, oh, you're wrong. Those morals are wrong. And they say, that's the way I was brought up. That's the way I was raised. That's my opinion. That's a Vine reference for any of you. Um vine fans out there but my main point is that it's really hard to to combat that idea that people should people of different races shouldn't live together because it's something that isn't just like you can't just objectively disprove it because it's so rooted deeply in people's hearts and in people's beliefs and this you would think this is just going to be in the 1930s but we'll see that that's not really the case that it continues on into modern day. Anyway, so I'm getting off track. African Americans were prohibited by these regulations from buying homes in the suburbs in the 1940s, the 1950s, and even into the 1960s by these federal housing administration rules. And because of that, they got none of the equity appreciation that white people gained. So for some, I don't want to get into the statistics because it is literally 9 a.m. on a Monday and I am no math queen, but the point is when people were buying houses in the 30s and the 40s, the housing prices were um, relative to income, like only twice the, so like if you made $50,000 a year, which I don't know if that works out for inflation, but if you made $50,000 a year, your house, the average cost of a house would be $100,000. Of course, property appreciation happens, so housing 
housing appreciated. So people, white people specifically, who were able to buy houses in the 1930s were able to benefit from that appreciation. So if you bought a house in California for like $100,000 when it was only double your income and that was an affordable sort of metric, if you bought a house and it was 100000 in like 30 years, maybe it was like 800000 Okay, I don't know anything about housing prices, but I'm just talking numbers right here. You benefit off that equity. African Americans, however, never got that chance. And we're going to see what those implications are later on in this episode. So... Um, Eventually, there was an act, a Fair Housing Act, passed in 1968 during the Civil Rights era, which essentially allowed African Americans to buy homes wherever they could. But like I just mentioned, housing prices had been rising for the last 30 years. So now you suddenly had, yes, you can buy homes, but the housing prices were so much higher that people could not afford houses that they could have previously afforded had they been allowed to buy a house in the 1930s. So... There already was that systematic um, disenfranchising that happened in the early 1930s through the through the 1930s all the way up until um, 1960s, and there was some progress made after 1968, but that was eventually reversed, as we will see in approximately two minutes. <laughs> so I wanted to read a couple of personal quotes um, from an article that I read um, because I think it's really easy to get lost in the statistics and forget the real people behind the things that I'm talking about and these were real policies that really hurt people like just imagine for a second that you have the money and you can buy a house but no one will give you no one will give you a loan or if you have the deposit no one will give you a loan and when you when you want to buy a house no one will show you a home like you want to start a suppose you wanted to start a family and you wanted to have a good life and the market's basically spitting in your face saying no you can't that's a really personal and traumatic thing and it happened for decades upon decades in this country um i'm just realizing this episode is not going to be that funny um that's okay though it's important to learn about important things um so harold and bill moss were married and were looking for a house and here are some of the things that they said so one of the quotes was something that people said to them was, who sent you here? Why don't you people go where you're wanted? You're going to bring other black people here and they're going to ruin our neighborhood. That is so, just so difficult to acknowledge and so difficult to deal with. Like, not only are you unable to get a house, like the the whole community is spitting on you and saying, we don't want you here. And sometimes that's like one of the most hurtful and traumatic things is like nobody wanting you nobody wanting you nearby them implying that you're going to bring danger and trouble when all you're looking for is a house and the problematic thing is I think we still see that narrative here like how many of you have well I mean if you're a person of color listening to this or the children of immigrants and how many of you have been in an any situation and someone says go back to where you came from we don't want you here what are you doing here and the implication that you're going to bring other people like you it's the whole concept also of like chain migration that you're bringing more people like you and that's somehow dangerous and somehow going to ruin the country or ruin the fabric that's really powerful in the way that it it, it works to people that in the way that it hurts people because it's not just saying i don't want you to live near me it's saying I reject everything about you and everything that you're going to bring to this community which is essential to people's identity which is essential to their 
sense of who they are, sense of well-being, and to to spit in people's face like that, and not only just say no, you can't buy a house here, but say not only if you even if you could buy a house, we don't want you here, is just so demoralizing, and I just think it's important to sit with that and and recognize that that rhetoric still exists in America today. Um, and Bill Moss, who was uh, the wife of Harold Moss, said. I cried because it was my first time experiencing something like that, Bill Moss said, the pain evident in her voice even decades later. We had more than the down payment. So this kind of goes back to what I had talked to earlier. Um, you have all the money, but people, people don't want you around. People don't want you near them. It's like you're contagious. That hurts. And you can see that it hurt Bill Moss, the pain, like decades and decades and decades later. It still hurts her to think about how she was rejected. These two also talk about how they would have to come up with strategies to get people to show them the house because if they came up to the house and the realtor was there and the realtor saw that they were black people, the realtor would literally just peace out, be like, um, I, I gotta go. And that meant that they never got shown any houses. So they would have to do something where they would arrive at the house early and the realtor would be trapped. So the fact that they had to come up with so many different strategies to even be shown a house is ridiculous. Um, so while some people might think that um, housing discrimination is a thing of the past. It actually is a super big deal um, in the current day. So there's two main practices or two main cases that I really want to talk about. Um, the first is something called steering, and this exists as as recent as 2017. So um, I think there was a study that did um, an experiment where one person of color and one white person visited a real estate office and called a real estate office to ask about properties for rent and for sale. And they both both have the same information. They told the same income, the same assets, and the same employment. And then both of them were treated very politely and given nice appo- given appointments to look at properties. But the white person, despite having the same income, the same assets, and the same employment as the black person, was shown more units. And then they were more likely to be offered lower rent than their black test- testing partner. So this still exists as of um, as of 2017. Like this is very common, and you see this all the time. You you like to think that these sort of things are race blind. That anyone who shows up gets the same flat rate, and this experiment just proves that isn't true. And before you say, okay, well th- maybe this is an isolated incident. The problem, according to the NPR article that I read, wasn't regional, but actually was national. So the researchers did this more than eight thousand times in 28 different metropolitan regions so not only is this just so this is something not only is this something that happened to someone once which shouldn't it shouldn't even happen to someone once this happened 8,000 times in 28 different regions think about that for a second 8,000 times people practiced racial discrimination in the housing market or just in a way that they that baffles me because I I would think these things would be regulated by now, but they're not. Um, and this problem isn't just with like finding um, finding being shown units or being shown properties. It's a problem with loans as well because in 2017, according to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, 19.3% of Black applicants were denied a conventional home loan, which whereas only 7.9% of white people were denied the same loan. So 
the problems that we talked about earlier where black people were denied mortgages were are still very much alive and kicking today and while this like I know this sounds boring, right? Like, this sounds, okay, yeah, they can't get a mortgage, whatever. But this has real consequences, which I will talk about later, but I want you to think about for a second how much money goes into rent. Suppose you're paying $3,000 in rent um, per month, and that's $36,000 a whole year. And if you multiply that by years and years and years that money adds up and that's all money you could have saved or money you could have put towards education or money that could have been used for better purposes than just sinking it into a hole that you never get to see again and that's fine if you choose to rent on your own but the fact that you have no choice is really unfortunate and it's it's a problematic thing that still exists in our economy today um yeah so interestingly enough the um, even when black people had higher credit scores, like before you think that, okay, well, yes, traditionally African-Americans, so a big portion of African-Americans are low income, and maybe that's why they were denied the loans. Actually, even when black people have higher credit scores, they're often um, offered worse financing terms than less qualified white people. So it isn't just about credit scores. This isn't an objective thing. This is very clearly racial profiling and racial discrimination in any sort of financial interaction. Speaking of financial interactions, I'm going to talk about the mortgage crisis. I know, I know. For most of the people who are listening, I think my audience is primarily my friends and my parents. Um, The 2008-2009 recession can seem kind of opaque. Like we know vaguely what happened. We know that it was a really bad time for the economy, but it's difficult to to figure out what exactly happened and what that meant for a lot of people. And it had a really huge impact for African Americans. And I think it's important to point out that the mortgage crisis um, happened, or sorry, that the financial crisis came because of a mortgage crisis. It, it came with a um, the pop in the housing bubble, which I don't want to get into too much because I know the nitty gritty can be really terrible and boring. Um, take Econ 102. I don't know if I'd recommend it, but I definitely took it. So I want to talk specifically about the effect on African Americans. I had mentioned earlier that in 1968, there had been a, a law passed that helped African Americans get um, better housing. And unfortunately, and hold on, before I get into the unfortunately, let's talk about the positively. So yes, that law helped a little bit, but um, in 1978, oh, hold on. Okay, wait, let me start over with that sentence. So after that, there was some progress in housing. African Americans had the highest rate of housing that they had ever had um, up in the early 2000s, from like 2000 to 2006, there was a lot more housing. People were homeowners. It was great. Um, but after the recession, nearly, um, so before that, nearly 50% of black people owned homes at, homes at the height of the bubble. After that, um, the share has fallen to 42.3%, which is only a little bit better than 41.6%, which is what the rate was two years after that initial housing law that I talked about was passed. So right after the housing law, there was like a small improvement in home ownership. And that improvement, whatever we had, has regressed. Like we're, we're only a little bit better than we were 
shortly after people had been discriminated against for decades and decades. So a lot of progress was removed by the mortgage crisis. So key to this targeting of African Americans is subprime loans. Now, before you click away from this podcast, because nobody wants to learn about subprime loans on a Monday morning, I'm going to talk about them super quickly and then talk about how they're important in this case. So subprime loans are loans that have higher interest rates, they have really bad collateral, and they usually have less favorable terms. So you there's like a higher default rate, you have a higher interest um, rate, and they're usually given to people who don't have enough credit for a good loan. So like a good loan with a, a, a better, more equitable interest rate. If you have those good credit scores, you don't get a subprime loan. But if you have bad credit scores, you do get a subprime loan. That's the theory. That didn't happen to be the case during the 2008-2009 recession or the build-up to it because while you may think that this is super objective, right? Like, there's no way you can discriminate with loans because it's based on credit scores. Turns out you absolutely can. So um, in the lead-up to the financial crisis, um, an NYU sociology professor, Jacob Faber, found that Black people and Latinos were 2.4 times more likely to receive a subprime mortgage than white people, even in the cases where black people made a lot more money than white people. So the whole argument for subprime loans was that people with bad credit still got a loan, were still able to get a house, but had a higher interest rate. Of course, we know that subprime loans um, eventually a lot of people defaulted on those loans and that kind of provoked the housing crisis. Um, But This proves that it's not just a matter of low credit. This was specific targeting. So a black family making $200,000 a year meant that um, a black family who was making $200,000 a year got a subprime loan, whereas a white family who was making $30,000 a year often got a much better loan than a black family who was making way more money. So this is not an objective thing. This is very clearly racial targeting and the reason behind this like you might think this makes a lot of this makes no sense like what what do you get from targeting people with with subprime loans there's no benefit to to discriminating with loans actually there is a lot more benefit because like i mentioned earlier subprime loans have a higher interest rate so when you give a subprime loan to a black family making two hundred thousand dollars a year you get way higher interest on the loan so you make a lot more money this goes against regulation, but there was in this time, in this era, there was a lot of peeling back of regulations. So people were able to target wealthy black families as well as, of course, still low-income black families were also getting subprime loans. And when the housing market crashed, they weren't able to pay these high interest rates and they defaulted on their loans, which often led to a loss in homeownership and just financial crisis because people people sink a lot of money into houses and that money didn't mean anything because they had to pay these insanely high interest rates that they shouldn't have had to pay. So um, this has led to some, the immediate consequences of this, of course, as I mentioned, have been a loss of homeownership, but there's also been some really immediate, like horrible consequences. Um, that I didn't actually know about. So they're called, it's called um, a contract for deed. It's a very predatory lending system. And it actually had a big role in decimating black communities in Chicago and Baltimore during like the mid 
1900s. And in this system, a buyer agrees to put a lot of money into an often really bad home while also having to make higher interest payments with the aim that eventually they'll get the home. However, there isn't really any contract, so it's not like a good loan with the bank. You have no entitlement to that home. If it, if you, you can be evicted, you can lose all of your equity, and if you even miss a single payment, yeah, you can be evicted. And this has led to a lot of urban decline and looting of families. So you can see the real consequences here, right? Like, I talked about earlier how difficult it is for black people to get a loan, and that too, when they get a loan, the interest rates are a lot higher. So sometimes when people don't have options and they don't know enough about the market, they'll go into these sorts of deals like contract for deed, and then they'll end up losing more money and be evicted. It's a really horrible sort of situation where there just is no um, no good option. Um, and then there's also some long-term consequences that I wanted to point out. So today, African Americans, on average, have their um, are their incomes are about sixty percent of average white incomes, which isn't great. And we know that there is discrimination in the economy. What's really interesting, however, is that African American wealth is actually only five percent of white wealth. So the difference between income and wealth is like income is what you earn and wealth is like the assets that you have like your stocks and your houses and all those sorts of things and like i mentioned it's so difficult for people to get a house and when they do get a house they either or when they did get a house they lost it because of the really crappy loans that they got or they weren't able even able to get a loan and because of that there's no ability to buy a house and have wealth in that way. All the wealth, that they, all the money that they have is their income. And this has very real consequences because wealth is a safety net for people for their financial emergency. Suppose, you know, someone has a really terrible financial emergency. They can sell their house and use that money to cover their emergency. Or they can sell that house and help their kids go to college and set up future generations. So there is a very important component that wealth plays and we talk a lot about like wealth disparity in this country and this is one of the ways in which it shows up it shows up in the way that people are unable to get loans they can't get houses and and when they can't get houses they don't have that wealth storage and they can't set their family up for any sort of great economic they, they can't set their family up for any economic advancement because they have no wealth to do so. And if the economy crashes, they also have no safety net. So they're really just kind of falling and falling and falling with nothing to catch them and with regulations constantly just yanking the net out from underneath them. Um, and another, the last thing I want to talk about is this has also like real implications for life expectancy. Um, people who live in areas that were once deemed hazardous, which were the red line areas, the government basically would circle places that African Americans lived and call them like red line district or like redlining, red line areas where people could not live because, um, or where they wouldn't issue loans because that's where African Americans lived and the loans wouldn't be quote unquote secure for the reasons that I described earlier. Those re those areas all the way from the 1930s today, people who lived there have life expectancies that are decades lower than what we would consider like the best neighborhoods. And this is data from the Tacoma Pierce Co County Health Department. So I just want to finish up by talking about, yeah, I, I, I know this is not necessarily the 
the most entertaining subject, but I think it's really important. It's often really um, easy to get turned away from a lot of these topics because of the amount of detail that goes into it, like learning about subprime loans and mortgages. It seems really boring. It's not flashy, but it actually... I think that's why this has been so pervasive. Like, if you think about discrimination in America, a lot of people don't necessarily think about, um, like, you, you you wouldn't think of housing as your first thing. You would think about not being able to get a job, or you would think about someone refusing to serve you food. And I think that people who are pursuing these discriminatory practices in the housing market actually benefit from this because people don't think about housing when they think about racial discrimination but it's actually one of the most insidious ways in which we can undermine African Americans in this country and undermine their wealth and basically undermine the position of future African Americans in this country so on that happy note um that concludes today's episodes there will be no second segment um this is kind of a modern contemporary issue that deals also with um, minority issues. So it's, it's kind of an amalgamation of both of those se- um, sections. So please tune in next week. I'm going to have a special guest, um, one of my friends, which is super exciting. And I will see you all next week. Thank you so much for listening. Um,